Hello, and welcome to the FinTech Power 50 podcast, focused on discussing the most interesting topics in FinTech. The FinTech Power 50 is an annual guide to the most influential, innovative, and powerful figures in the FinTech industry, shining a spotlight on those who are transforming financial services for the better. My name is Francis Bignall. I am a journalist and lead LATAM correspondent at the FinTech Times, and will be leading today's podcast on behalf of the Power 50. Payments are an ever-changing landscape within the fintech world, but as things change and develop, much about the sector stays the same. With payment methods developing all the time in the consumer and business sectors, many are left wondering what will be the major trend of 2023. In this podcast, we will explore some of the latest innovations within the payments industry and look at how paytech may develop over the coming year. With the help of our panellists, we will decipher what the next big trend will be and what challenges could be standing in the way of the perfect payment mix. So with that said, I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, James Butland, VP of Financial Partnerships of Airwallex, and James Neville, CEO of Citizen. So James and James, welcome. I'm delighted to have you here, as I said. And yeah, how are you both today? James B, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very well. It's very cold today. I'm sure we're all feeling it. We absolutely are. It is freezing. But I am very excited to talk about some hot topics in payments. So, you know, it's a nice little contrast, but I'm very excited to, to get that going. Before we jump into these hot topics, I'd just like to get an introduction from you both about yourselves and the companies you work for. So James B, if I could get an intro from you. Fantastic. Um, So I'm James Butland. I'm at Airwallex. Airwallex is a cross-border payment provider. We do um, bank transfers, issuing, acquiring, um, really looking after businesses who want to expand and take their business globally using our financial infrastructure that we've built over the past six, seven years. My background is a mix of traditional finance and fintech. So I had a traditional financial career um, up until 2016 when I moved into fintech. So I joined um, TransferWise, now now Wise, looking at their um, financial partnership network. And I joined a small Series A startup called Airwallex in 2017, um, which has now grown to a Series E startup with 1,300 people around the world. And I look after our financial partnerships, both banks and also the scheme, so MasterCard, Amex, um, Visa. Um, so that's me and looking forward to talking all things payments today. Brilliant. And James then? Yeah, hi, I'm, I'm James Neville. I'm the CEO over at, at Citizen. Uh, we're an instant cardless payment provider. Um, we work typically across uh, regulated markets that need or have a need to connect identity and, uh, and money. Uh, we leverage uh, the, the banking rails and, and some other exciting stuff kind of coming up um, this year to affect you know, instant kind of real-time payments um, cross-border and, and domestically. My background, I've been in payments and e-commerce yeah, all of my life, so uh, a bit of a stint over at um, Just Eat in the early days and some gaming firms and then into uh, WellPay before it's, um, before it's IPO and yeah, back running another business again with a, a team and we're all based down in a Talbridge uh, in, in East London. So yeah, James, we should connect at some point as well. Yeah, it's like, a, it's it's very nice now that, you know, we're past COVID that we can sort of see each other in person. And, you know, Zoom calls are these things of the past. They're not always a necessity anymore. With that all said and done, let's get onto the topics of payments. It's why we're all here. And I'm sure we're very excited to talk about it. And I think the best way to really kick this conversation off is to discuss what the perfect payment is. Because obviously, I think maybe, you know, 20, 20 years ago, when you discussed payments, it was all cash, really. You didn't really think about debit cards or credit cards all that much. I'm sure they were about, but they weren't really the big deal. 
Whereas if you look at payments nowadays, you've got different types of credit. You've got BNPL, you've got digital payments in the terms of cryptos and other digital wallets. So with that all said, I'd like to get your opinions on what makes the perfect payment. James B, if I could go to you first on this one. Yeah, I think when you look at payments, there's three there's three main um, pillars of a, of a perfect payment, which is speed, price and transparency. So obviously you want your payment to arrive um, instantly or as near instant as possible, which from us, you know, being based in the UK or in, in the SEPA zone over the instant rails, which we have available through our banks is pretty straightforward. I think when you start looking going cross border, then you elongate those timeframes as you use um, more uh, more banks to actually process your payment. So speed's probably the the one of the biggest things with um, getting a payment uh, sent or received. Price is key as well. You know, if, if you're sending a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars to someone, you want to make sure that hundred dollars or pounds actually arrives in full. And then lastly is transparency. So if the payment isn't instant, you want to know where that payment is. So I think if you get the speed right, you negate the transparency question because the money's arrived. You don't need to check where it is along the, the payment chain. But for me, that's kind of the three pillars of a perfect payment is low cost, fast, if not instant, and the ability for both the sender and the recipient to see exactly where the funds are at all times. I'd completely agree with that. I think it really is this idea of especially speed going into this question. Speed was the thing that was on my mind. And it was this idea of, you know, wanting everything instantly in this sort of consumer driven world that we are in now. I think I, I, maybe it's just like the emergence of like Amazon Prime and stuff like that. And this idea of instant services. But when you make a payment, you expect it from your account into their account almost instantly. And so I would completely agree, uh, agree sorry, with this idea that speed is, if not the top, one of the top three, like you said. I think consumers don't have it. You're right. Consumers don't have any patience anymore. I'm a consumer. I don't have any patience. So if I order something online, I want it the next day. Um, and I think businesses are going that way as well. You know, businesses now expect things to be done instantly um, rather than waiting a week or, or two weeks. So I think speed's really key. And especially with payments, we've been spoiled with our domestic payment systems that things are instant over faster payments or separate instant. What we're building at Air Wallex is taking that instant settlement domestically over our financial infrastructure and making that an international instant settlement. Yeah, and I mean, I think that really is the key is trying to make these international payments now as fast as the, as the national ones. James N, what are your views? Would you agree that speed is the top, if not top three? Yeah, I mean, it's the instant nature of, of everything. That's just what everyone demands these days, expects, as, as James notes. You know, it's a... Uh, it's a case of, we like to talk about it as kind of fraud, friction, and, and fees. So, you know, ultimately, they're the pillars of, of cost, of instant nature of a payment, but also trying to manage that with the dimension of fraud, because typically, the easier you make it for someone to pay, the more the fraud rates go up. And you kind of you see that with cards, with tokenization, you get kind of higher chargeback rates than you would with, uh, you would with a faster payment, for example. And that's the kind of contrast between, you know, push, um, push and pull. But the other pillar to all this is, you know, it can be as fast as you like, it can be as fraud-free as you like. It's got to be simple for the consumer to use. So conversion and usability is also kind of a, a surrounding pillar of all of this. Um, you, you'll all remember the experiences of going through, you know, 3D Secure when you get thrown up a Cardinal page and it it's awful and it looks really choppy. Um, you know, we've moved away from that. Now, strong customer authentication is 
built into the bank's mobile apps, whereas doing stuff with OTP on a you know secondary orthodox transaction was always was always really painful. So yeah, for me, it's fraud, friction, and, and reduced cost while making sure you've got a consistent user experience that converts every time. And the consumer choice is habitual as well. If you you put somebody in front of a a payment page and you know the 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 most ubiquitous ones are things like JD Sports, you know, where you've got every buy now, pay later, you've got Apple Pay, you've got PayPal. People will always choose the kind of rail that they want to pay on. They're quite habitual by nature. So if you pay with Apple Pay, you just take your phone with you and you always pay with Apple Pay. Um, you know, if you pay with PayPal regularly, you're quite happy to go down that. I'm constantly getting called out on petrol forecourts because I never take my wallet with me. And a lot of them go, insert your card to pay a pump. And you're like, ah, I don't have a card on me. I've got a, and it doesn't take, it doesn't take, um, uh, doesn't take your your Apple Pay. So you know sometimes things kind of fail, but they're all catching up. I think strong customer authentication in the banking mobile apps, once that's pervasive across Europe, will be um, a bit of a game changer, certainly for account to account payments. What's your defence of the petrol pump? They don't take Apple Pay, so <laughs> uh, l- <laughs> luckily, luckily they're like they ask you for the card first. So oh, you don't yeah. actually first and then be stuffed. So, but it has caught me out a number of times. It caught me out in the um, uh, in that petrol crisis. You know, we had to queue for like an hour and a half. Oh, yeah. I got to the thing. I had to pay a pump, and I'm like, I've just queued an <laughs> hour and a half, and I don't have a bloody card with me. So you know, these things, these things are, are sent to test us. I think. I mean, I'm not saying this is the answer, but I mean, drive away. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I joke. I joke. Um, but you raised some really interesting points there, and. You know, as we were talking about speed, it didn't really cross my mind, but I suppose you're right. Consumer ease of access has to be up there as well. This idea that, you know, the most successful businesses nowadays are the ones that have the most options. And the ones, because like you said, once you're in your habits of paying in a certain way, this idea of sort of paying with Apple Pay, I don't know about you guys, but for the longest time, I refused to get Apple Pay because I was like, I'm just going to spend crazy amounts of money (laughs) if I do. If I've always got, I always have my phone on me. I'm going to be anywhere. I can pay for that. Tap. Tap, tap, tap. And then before I know it, I've lost all my money. So uh, for the longest time, I refuse to get it for that reason. But now that I do use it, I find that I am always just paying with Apple Pay. I don't bring my wallet with me half the time anymore to the point now that I'm just like, I don't have my ID on me either. And these things, it's, you're completely right. Once you get in the ways, in your own ways even, you just continue in that manner until you have a reason not to. And if you go to somewhere that doesn't accept that payment card or payment method, you're going to want to go somewhere else, yeah. right? I mean, that's my opinion, yeah, at least. Over the past few years, we've been building a, an acquiring platform and we start off just offering Visa and MasterCard acceptance. And for us, that's the majority of the market, right? So that should be fine for for our customers. And then what we've we've seen over the past couple of years is actually, you know, it's not just Visa and MasterCard, there's American Express. There's a whole long list of alternative payment methods when you look at places like the Netherlands, people want to accept Ideal, or Germany, people want to accept so forth. So for us... When we built our financial infrastructure, that's a really key point is that what you think is the most used payment method, it could be, you know, 90% of the flow, but that 10% of the flow, which uses alternative payment methods, if you don't cover them, you're going to lose customers. So it's really, it's really pushing, I guess, the option back to the consumer or the business to give them the choice of what they use. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting as you, tra- as you travel the world, the difference is as well. I mean, you call out ideal, you know, go to Amsterdam and try to pay for something with a card, they're going to look at you sideways. Or we arrived, myself, my CTO, went uh, to meet Samsung in um, in Suwon, in Korea. And we got we got out of the cab. Luckily, we had some cash in our pockets. We went to get some uh, some cash out of a bank. Nope, 
Samsung Pay everywhere. You have to use Samsung Pay to access an ATM. There isn't like Visa and MasterCard pervasively across that. So it was quite a, it's quite an eye opener when suddenly you arrive in another culture and all those payment methods you thought were ubiquitous suddenly aren't. This is exactly what I was going to say as well. Uh, having sort of focused on Latin America for the longest time, when you're looking international, sort of the main payment methods that we're used to here in the UK just aren't as big anywhere else. So in Brazil, for example, sort of looking at PixPay or in Mexico, looking at Cody, these sort of different payment methods really stand out. And it makes you realize that, you know, in order to be successful, successful, sorry, in the international market, you really do need to have those options. And I suppose that really brings me on to the to our next topic. And that's this idea of what what we're most excited about in payment in the payments industry right now. And if I was to say something, it is this idea of different payment methods, you know, these companies that are having this all encompassing, all in one sort of solution where you can pay with whichever method you like. Uh, James M, what are, you, what are your thoughts? What are you most excited about for in payments this year? I'm always excited by the instant nature of stuff. I mean, we've covered that earlier, but kind of real-time payments across the globe excites me. Transparency of kind of interconnected um, banking rails is obviously a goal. FedNow in the US uh, happening at some point this year is really exciting. Um, Vocalink's rollout of RTP in Canada is really exciting, although it was supposed to be this year. I think it's probably going to be next year from... Uh, from what I hear, uh, and obviously picks all of those things connected up together, you know, builds a, a really nice RTP network across the globe. But moreover, centrally backed, uh, central bank backed um, digital currencies, I think, are really exciting as well. So, you know, we're going to see a proliferation of stable coins, collateralized stable coins over over the next year or two. You've already got, you know, Circle USDC and, and USC. You've got Various other collateralized coins kind of coming out. I think the UK is pursuing a digital pound. That, the kind of cross-border transactions, I think is really interesting as well. But we'll we'll have to see how that all, all, all shakes out. I'm, I'm less excited by Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think they're, um, they're interesting um, platforms. But some of the, the rails that are being built on, on, on top of that, you know, people like Polygon building their kind of, you know, proof of stake kind of roll-up transaction network, I think is interesting for... The payments ripple, of course. I think that sector over the course of, of this year is going to become a little bit more pervasive in um, certainly in e-commerce. Definitely. I think it was only a matter of time, really, before we sort of touched on cryptocurrencies and sort of their impacts on the payment space. But I, th I think you're completely right. Sort of the impact that stable coins are going to have, central uh, CBDCs as well, obviously, they're going to be a huge factor. And the more that they're implemented and the more that they're developed, I think they're going to have a massive impact on, on the payments industry as we know it. Uh, James B, what are your thoughts? I think from my side, the most probably exciting thing that's happening in, in payments at the moment and, and cross-border is is really what James M was saying about the expansion and people going global. So, you know, what we've seen over the past, I would say, four or five years in the world is sort of re-emergence of, of national borders and barriers to doing trade internationally, whether that be, you know, Brexit or, or the US taking a more insular, insular approach under, under Trump. And I think what we're seeing in terms of fintech and and payments, especially, is the ability to do business anywhere in the in the globe from your from your home country. So we could be talking about you know crypto. We could be talking about you know what we're doing, building this sort of local um, payments network. So you can you know be based in in the UK or in Cornwall, but you can be doing business in the US, Australia, Hong Kong uh, in the same day without leaving your your home country and I think COVID pushed a lot of people that way but that seems to be gathering speed um, over the past sort of 18 months or so so I think 
things like embedded finance, financial infrastructure, which allows companies to operate globally from, from their home country. I think that's probably the most exciting thing for me. Um, it's not you know, like 20, 30 years ago, you need to fly to the US, open a local office, fly to Australia, hire a team down there. You can do all this, you know, um, sat at home and, and building your global business wherever you are. Yeah, this idea, you know, I suppose, I mean, maybe looking at it from a slightly different point of view, but this idea of remote working almost seems to be this, I, I don't know if that's sort of what you mean as well, but this idea that you can really just be in your own space and still have that expansive reach that previously wasn't, just wasn't accessible. And the fact that that is becoming so mainstream now is 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 exciting, you know, it's something that businesses should be excited about to have this new reach to new customers and to ultimately see their their platforms and products used in a new way in a new environment. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't think there's there's any real real barriers now. If you're if you're based, you know, remotely and you're working um, online, you you have an e-commerce store. There's no barriers for you going anywhere in the world. And I think the one thing the payments providers do give you is that ability to act like a local so as james m was saying you know whether you're selling in south korea online or you're selling in china or you're selling in latin america accepting those local payment methods gives you as a business the ability to act like a local um when you're based um overseas i think that for me that's probably the most exciting thing that's happening um because it means that now especially in the e-commerce world you're not really, you know, tied to your national borders and your local, um, your your local, um, I suppose, remit of customers. You can really go internationally from from day one. Definitely, and you know, as we're talking about these things that are to be excited about, there's obviously things that can be improved as well. And I suppose when we're talking at the start, we were talking about you know, speed and fraud and ease of access. So, what are some things? And I suppose accessibility. You know, as we're talking about expanding uh, overseas accessibility has to be a big a big talking point so what can be improved in payments in 2023 do you think james b i think when we talk to the start about speed price transparency there's still a long way to go there i think you've got certain regions of the world who are much further ahead so if you look at like um uk europe with open banking um that we're probably you know one of the uh uh, pioneers globally for, for that sort of technology which when you then push out into places like APAC you know doesn't really exist yet on on mass scale so there's still a long way to go in terms of price and speed I think when you think about you know sending money internationally collecting money internationally the the countries which offer those sort of instant settlement systems simplified payment methods uh, are still quite few it's probably about 20 percent of the globe and then you've got huge parts of the world with, with massive amounts of trade. Um, we see a lot of demand for moving money in and out of the Middle East. Um, we see a lot for, for LATAM and, you know, Africa as well, you know. So for for us, we've, we've built probably um, as much as we can in, I would say, those G10 countries. And now we're now looking at optimising those routes in, in places where, you know, you don't have open banking as a standard. You don't have virtual accounts as a standard. You don't have instant settlement systems as a standard. So we're kind of looking how we can improve that um, on our financial platform. But um, there's still a long way to go. I think sometimes we're quite spoiled, you know, whether in the UK or Europe, with how, how far along we've come in terms of payments, instant settlements, and also the cost. You know, it's, it's next to nothing to send a... Well, it should be nothing to send a payment uh, domestically. 
Um, even compared to the US, we're probably, you know, five, uh, five years ahead. I think that is a really interesting point that you raise. And it is something that I think often gets forgotten when talking about payments is the luxury that we have. Like you said, this idea of everything is free, everything is instant. Or as you said, it should be free and it should be instant when you're looking domestically. Go to other places that aren't as developed. And that really isn't the norm. Talking about like open banking and these developments in sort of payments, they're just really... I mean, some there's unbanked, for example. The idea of unbanked or underbanked isn't that commonplace, I wouldn't say, in the UK. But if you go to other regions and other countries, I suppose, it really is, it does sort of take you back by how different things are. And it it's just goes to show that the development of digital payments could be such a catalyzer, I suppose, or such a catalyst, I should say, in helping create this accessibility. In this, and that just brings in the idea of financial inclusion which I think is another really big talking point. And I think a lot of countries we've seen, you know, completely move away from, from cash in Europe. You know, a lot of countries, you know, no longer accept, I think it was Denmark or Sweden announced they no longer accept cash um, domestically. And I think what that does is obviously it, it, it promotes, you know, digital payments, so there's speed and there's the, the price aspect there. But when you look cross-board, if I'm sending funds to someone in a country which doesn't have, you know, that... Um, instant settlement system, digital wallets, then there's a huge cost on the recipient of that payment as well, which a lot of time we don't think about. So if you receive funds in a, in a country which doesn't have as advanced payment infrastructure, there's also a cost there for the, for the recipient. So I think there's lots more that we can, we can do um, as we build out um, our platform to really look at infrastructure in other parts of the globe. Yeah, I think those are all really interesting points. And just on that point of cash and cashless, I'd I know at the FinTech Times we had some some news come in recently talking about the use of cash in the UK and it said that 63% of people are still using cash at least five times a month which I personally found really surprising considering like as we've said how accessible digital payment methods are so James then could I could I get your thoughts in on this I mean look it's it, it's going to be different whether you're in a metropolitan area or whether you're you're out there in the sticks I mean all of us probably frequent London on a daily basis, you know, you walk around, like we just said, with Apple Pay or, you know, a card in your in your wallet. Go to kind of a village somewhere in, I don't know, let's say Norfolk, and you go to the greengrocer. A lot of them will only want cash. They won't take cards. They're quite surprised when people want to pull out um, pull out uh, a phone and pay with it. Look, I, I think you've always got to have it there. Um, there are people that won't even carry cards in this country and like paying with cash. So from a you know, financial inclusion perspective, it's got to remain, but it is definitely on 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 the way out. I always have it for taxis where I live. I don't know you, James, then, but I can't, every time I get a taxi where I live down in Kent, they always insist I pay with cash or they don't accept a car. So I think you know, for some for some use cases, I always have you know you know twenty or thirty pounds in my wallet um, because. Yeah, my kids take that, so I never have that anymore. So as soon as I look down, they've got they've got a tenner for their whatever they want want to do at that yeah, moment absolutely. in time. I mean, what was interesting with kids is you remember, you know, when you were a kid, you had like a couple of quid in your pocket for lunch or, you know, your mum gave you a five or whatever. Now everything's on the school, like parent pay type system. So you have like a digital wallet that your kids basically draw from when they get their lunch and, and things like that. And that's, that was quite interesting kind of turned around at the time of, of COVID when nobody wanted to, to touch cash and the kids were going back. That really, that really accelerated. But the one that gets me is when I need to put air in my tires, on my car, not my bicycle tires, and you need a pound. 
When have you ever got a pound coin to do that? Luckily, they all seem to have moved now to Apple Pay near us. But, you know, you, you suddenly got a, you know, a, a low tire and you want to pop to a petrol station. Where is that pound? Nobody gives you cash back anymore. Nobody wants to give you change on the cards. Those things, um, I think, are a biggest problem that I can see. But I, w- I was always very happy about the... The um, when I used to go to the shopping centres, there was like one of those kids' rides you went on. You needed a pound coin, and I never had a pound yeah. coin, obviously, because I didn't carry cash. And it was always great. So I say to my yeah. daughter, "You can't go on it." And about a month ago, they started accepting like contactless cards. They were like a card reader on the side <laughs> of this uh, Bob the Builder. <laughs> like, so I've got no excuse now. I wonder if they'll do that with um, shopping trolleys. You know, you've got to put the pound in those. Connector, and wonder if you can do that with a with a contactless transaction. That would be absolutely. I find it so interesting that you guys are talking about that, just because in my experience, I remember my housemate had a, I think it was seven quid or something, and we'd bought a takeaway, and they were trying to pay me back with that that cash, and I, the, that was the last thing I wanted. I was like, I don't, I don't have a need for cash anymore, <laughs> and I got given cash uh, from my aunt for Christmas, and I was sort of just looking at it like. Can you just put this in your bank and transfer me, please? Like, I don't, I just don't have a use for cash anymore. It just feels like, I don't know. There's just no need for it. Like I said, I don't bring my wallet around with me anymore. It just doesn't feel like, like cash is needed. And you have less, you have less holes in your pockets. Now, well, because you don't have cash spilling out of them. That was definitely the the pocket disintegrator was the 50p piece. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. But moving on to the next topic, I suppose, James, then I'll come to you first on this one. How much impact do consumers have on what's trending? I mean, we spoke about it earlier that we are consumers. Like, despite you like being a part of a business and having this business perspective, we are all consumers at the end of the day. And now that we are in a consumer-driven world, what impact do you think they have on trends? Um, well, they are the trends. If you're on a payment page and you're, you're given a, a suite of options, you will make a choice based on habituality and circumstance. So you might use... Apple Pay if it's available for speed, but you may then choose to use PayPal if you've got it connected to maybe a different card that's not next to you or to go direct from your bank account, or it might be a big purchase and then you look at a buy now, pay later scheme, whether it's Klarna or After or or, or ClearPay. I don't think, uh, it, e-commerce is very different from some of the markets that, that we serve because it is about speed and choice. When you look at kind of money in, money out type accounts, so think about wallets, you know, think about anywhere where you would have a balance, you trade from it and you, you withdraw funds. It's amazing the ubiquity of, of things like just straight up bank transfers. You know, that's that's always quite surprising to me that, that wallets aren't as, as dominant over there. So, you know, for me, it's, it's habituality, but also, um, also circumstance. Um, but there's clearly a, a growing need for consumer financing at point of purchase for for better or for good, you know, buy now, pay later at point of transaction in a cost of living crisis. I'm not quite sure that sits right with me, but, you know, that's clearly going to force a, a trend towards buy now, pay later. So do you think that it needs to be to have some sort of like warning prompt up or something that just maybe to dissuade a consumer from using that sort of payment method? Or would that lead to more car abandonments? Uh, it's all it's all about choice. Um if somebody wants debt a point of transaction, then you know, that's entirely up to them. You can't be the point of like making things fast and instant is that you don't get much opportunity to communicate either benefits or or um, kind of downsides to transit. You don't have use this payment method because it does this, or don't use this payment method because it it, it, it does that. Um, there's never been much of a, an interaction on the whys and wherefores of 
what the payment method does because it's about clicking it as quickly as as possible. So yeah, it comes down to again circumstances, habituality. Um, I'm not a big user of buy now, pay later, but you know other people will will choose to. That's a, an interesting point of view, I suppose, because I hadn't really thought of this idea that you know that there should be these warnings that pop up and that it's almost it almost feels like I don't want to say a loan, it's not loan shark esque, but it feels like this sort of. Um, Oh, the word is escaping me right now, but this sort of like lurking to take advantage of people that aren't quite aware, if you know what I mean, just sort of. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's the majority or the the minority. I I don't. I don't I'm not coming out and saying buy now pay later is um is predatory because I, I I don't think it is, but I I do think people don't understand certainly the impacts that that could have on their credit rating in the future if they're using it, you know, to essentially prop up their finances no and no, i think that's a very fair comment as well because i mean it, it all you have to do is really look at the statistics and i suppose there are definitely some that are going to show that it is very useful and it has helped people out in in certain times but i remember just a, a reading a year ago i think it was just some stats that were coming out about people who had used buy now pay later services i'm not going to name names but they they were just so shocking to see how much people had been put in debt and they said well they there should have been some sort of warnings like you were saying that there should have been some sort of why or how the benefits or the the cautions that people should have when using these services and i i do think that is perhaps something that you know in in a world where consumers are driven it does help when consumers feel like they're being taken care of and i suppose that is the sort of the weighing thing that you've got to consider is do you just offer whatever the ser service the consumer wants without sort of thinking about it and whatever detriment that might have to them or do you say to them look, we're going to give you a personalized service. These are the pros and cons. Just be aware of them. I mean, I think these are all things that, you know, are really up for debate and do require some sort of fine tuning, really, because there has to be sort of, there's a fine line, really, between sort of taking advantage of, all, of, of their naivety, I suppose. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things, well, obviously consumers, whether your clients are consumers or, or businesses, you know, they, they really are, are the ones who decide whether they use your service or not and i think one of the biggest barriers is is trust and i think they need to trust your you know your product your your company in order to actually make the leap and, and start using it so it goes back to what we talked about you know if the if the payments are instant then there's no trust aspects the money arrives you know um, as they as they send it but um, trust is really the be all and end all when you're using a new payment method or a new provider. So you know, we've done a lot to build our, our embedded finance you know, platform. So you don't have to then go and trust another party if you're dealing with one business and when you embed um, our product into your business, then your customers are trusting you and a, a company they've known for a while and that they've used for a while. But I think trust is probably the biggest barrier for any any new service, any conversion of um, of clients over to to your business, if they don't know you, they don't trust you, then they won't use you. Um, there's things you can do to mitigate trust. You know, you can you can be ten times better than the incumbent. You know, we saw that with with Uber and black cabs, right? They kind of took the market away by being so much better than the the incumbent um, offering. Um, I think in payments, you can do certain things. You know, you can get regulated by the local regulator. We went through the FCA regulation to build that trust aspect. But um, yeah, if your payments are, are fast, if they are cheap, if it's transparent, um, then you can get round or get over that trust hurdle. But it's probably the biggest um, factor when 
when consumers or businesses are looking at you using your service. And I suppose that leads on nicely to the next sort of talking point, which is talking about some major challenges that payment companies are going to face in 2023. And so you mentioned trust. Are there any others that you think are, are big challenges? I th- yeah, I think I think payments uh, in general over the past five, six years has expanded significantly. We saw that throughout COVID and the, the shift to, to e-commerce. So you're probably going to see now, um, whilst I think payments are still growing strongly and we've talked about the, you know, the use of cash and that going away and more digital payment methods coming out and more people shopping online and doing more online. So I think there's still a growing segment there, but um, I do think there's going to be a bit of pressure on the sector. So you'll probably see more companies partnering with other companies to offer full service um, solutions, whereas, you know, you You've got companies who just do sort of open banking, for example, at the moment. They're probably going to have to look at building, you know, um, other services to to offset the reliance on one sector. We talk about buy now, pay later. Um, if buy now, pay later comes under heavier regulation um, and it's not as profitable as it once was, if you had bad debts rising, you've got interest rates going up or they've been going up. I don't know how much further they're going to go. Um, so I think all of these pressures on the sector will mean that payment companies need to look at either partnering to expand their offerings um, or really doubling down and concentrating on one core offering, which they can think is is market beating. And how about you, James, then? I think just to, yeah, just to, to, to add to that, I think you know, the, the promises we've seen in, in real-time payments and you know, the proliferation of of that across the globe, but then of course uh, the mandate for separates and across Europe—it's all very welcomed. But you know the integrations with each of these banks, certainly when you talk about open banking, could definitely be more mature. You know, and the contrast between the UK and other countries of having you know a working group, a standard, a kind of body that that steers that. Europe just hasn't had the same type of standardisation. So what you find is things work well with some banks and, and don't work as well with others. We've had over the years since 2019, actually like banks, we won't call them out here, but some of them, you know, almost a passive aggressive stance of, you know, offering up APIs to be open, but APIs that don't work as well as they should. Um, and I think, you know, kind of mandating those standards and ensuring those standards um, are available to all is is key to, to openness. But Let's see what happens with the mandate for separate instant across Europe. It seems like a great promise, whether it becomes a reality in the short term, the medium term, or the much longer term, it's, it is for us to see. And just on that topic, uh, James, then, are there any new regulations or regulations in the pipeline that I think, do you think would majorly affect this and sort of how payments are developed? Well, yeah, I mean, there's obviously the, the third payment service directive, PSD3, which should kind of unify um, some of this and start to move everyone to you know, bank-backed SCA, um, you know, mobile app authentication, um, standardization of uh, a kind of PIS and AIS. Um, and then everything else that's been promised beyond that, you know, we were promised across the UK um, kind of variable recurring payments um, in open banking that was supposedly being rolled out at the start of the pandemic. And that never really became a reality. You know, we've been working with some of the banks on, on trialing that and working out what the commercial dimension of that would be. But it's still not standard across um, all banks. And also, it's pretty much just a sweeping use case at the moment. So, you know, VRP is very much like a direct debit. It will go from your you know, your savings account to your um, current account or vice versa. But it, VRP will not go from your 
current account to a merchant's account, much like you know a kind of SaaS type subscription payment, and that's certainly desirable in in market as a replacement for um, replacement for direct debit. And then the other things that you know we want to see as um, a, a carless payment provider that operates over those rails is the promise of you know, extended personal data. You know, open finance promised um, from an insurer dimension and from a banking dimension to be able to openly exchange identity information. And I think that's really important for payment security and, and also authenticity of the, of the payee to be able to say, you know, is it James Neville from One Long Street, London? You know, is that really his mobile number? Is that really his email address? Um, so it's things like that, the, the developments on on that side, the promise of, of PSD2 going into PSD3 is, is key for us. And James B, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, look, I, I think with regulation, you know, the companies which own and operate their own licenses directly and don't rely on another intermediary in between themselves and the um, the end user are the ones which are going to succeed in the long term. I think there's a lot of fintechs or a lot of neobanks which um, were launched during, you know, the past 10 years on this sort of wave of uh, VC funding, which has built a UX interface on top of someone else's infrastructure. So I think, you know, that slows down your payments, that, you know, uh, decreases transparency. So I think um, from from my side, I see your regulation as, as key of any payment provider because you need to ensure that, one, you're applying to the local regs, but also you have full control over, over those payments. And, you know, I think crypto is also interesting to mention, like what we've seen with with FTX and and um, uh, Binance and and the fallout from that. Um, I think the regulation in that sector will be quite interesting to see how those companies continue to operate and and how they now now pivot um, to become more 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 compliant. I would say I think there's been a stronger focus on regulation now and oversight than maybe there was um, over the past sort of five five six years in fintech. Yeah, I mean, with crypto, it's got to be regulated um, in the same way as, as you guys having an EMI. You know, you've got an electronic money license, you hold custodial funds for, for consumers and for businesses. Um, crypto exchanges do the same thing, but they have custodial wallets for your Bitcoin, for your Ethereum or whatever token sits behind it. If they're not segregating those wallets, those accounts and using those funds to move between other parties in their, their group, you know, that should be a breach of those regulations in the same way that, you know, James and, and, and myself as, you know, an EMI and PI holder from the FCA, we can't move those monies around. We have to keep them segregated for our for our customers. So the same should be true for, for, for crypto. But, you know, as that sector expands, I think it is going to be about trust and transparency. People are now living and breathing, you know, your funds, your keys. If you don't control the wallet, then you don't control the funds um, themselves. Um, so we'll see how that all, all shakes out. I think FTX is probably the last nail in the coffin of kind of pre-regulation um, across Europe and other regions. And also it's a big eye-opener for a lot of consumers that didn't realise they didn't own those funds. They were being, you know, used for other purposes and particularly um, kind of market making and trading on the other side. I think you're completely right. I think it is only a matter of time before we start to see some serious regulations put in place because otherwise it was to sort of stop something like ftx happening again right and is i don't think it's it's viable or feasible for that sort of to keep on going and for crypto to really be successful because it, it comes back to this whole trust thing that we've spoken about right if people if this sort of stuff keeps happening 
people aren't going to trust it and if people don't trust it well then it's just not going to work because that's an absolute i mean so you might even say it's the it's the pillar of payments is trust right without trust it's just never going to work so no i, I completely agree yeah, I think a lot of people got carried away, didn't they? And I think, especially in the crypto space, it became this sort of wave you had to jump on before you missed out. Um, but I think now what's happened with the fallout from, from FTX is people have realised that, you know, if their money's not protected, or if their money's not being used the way they thought it was being used, and there's no regulation behind it, it's also a problem for regulators as well, right? I think the regulators need to really look at um, these sectors and and work out how they can not introduce friction but ensure that client money is is protected in some cases protected from the clients themselves you know um, as James uh, mentions you know as a as an EMI you have to safeguard funds we can't do anything with those funds and then when you look at something like FTX you realize that you know they weren't regulated in the same way but also what were they doing with client funds you know buy, buying villas apparently i'll wait for the netflix <laughs> uh documentary to come out to really understand what was going on there yeah no i i think you're completely right and as as we wrap up now we'll get to our to our final point and sort of our final our final theme if you will for today's podcast and that's how can businesses ensure they're building a strong payment mix and and we've talking about you know trust and we've talk, spoken about speed and and fraud and making sure that everything is in in the right place for for consumers to have the payments that they want to make immediately so as as i said as we, as we wrap up how can businesses ensure they're building a strong payment mix james and i'll go to you first on this one um i mean we touched on this before it's understanding their consumers and how their consumers behave are they domestic are they international are the you know are the average transaction values small exceptionally large do you need to know where that money is coming from and where that money is is going to you know what what do you want as authentication on the on the transaction so you know looking at a high spectrum of, of industries in any commerce it's it's got to be quick but there's got to be um, a very large palette or, or spectrum of, of choice all the way from you know, Apple Pay, Google Pay, down into Buy Now, Pay Later, cards, PayPal, and anything else that you can name along the way. If you're in the more regulated spaces, then you, you want to tie identity and money together. So you want a verified payment, whether that comes from open banking or, or a bank wire, plus all the, the horrible photo ID that goes along along with it and, and anything else on the transaction. And then if you get down into international payments, then, you know, you're looking at kind of cross-border payments. You're looking at is... is um, is a network like you know, Airwallets, like like James's business over there. You know, do they do kind of liquidity across borders? Can they make that transaction faster? So, yeah, it is about understanding your market, what your consumer behavior is, and and, and what people actually want to see at a deposit page, at a transaction page, or at a checkout. And James B, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think you have to talk to your customers, both your new customers, um, and you know your your existing customers, and work out what they really want and. Although every customer wants something slightly different, there are general themes that come out. So we started out as back in 2016 as a pure payout provider doing local payouts. We then added local bank collections and then we've added issuing and we've added acquiring and we've got FX liquidity and we've now built expense management on top of the issuing. And all of those different product lines came out of talking to our customers and really understanding what they want. Because when we spoke to them, most of them use like four or five different providers. Um, whereas... In, in our view, we should be the, the sole provider they need. So it's creating 
um, that frictionless um, ability to to move money both domestically and internationally um, over our financial infrastructure. I think that's what we we really looked at. Um, but even now, you know, when we're developing products, when we're thinking about what we build next, it comes first with speaking to our customers and saying, you know, who else are you using in addition to our wallets? You know, what can we build to to capture more of your of your business? So yeah, it starts and ends with the with the client, um, whether that be a business or a consumer. Fantastic. I mean, I think we've really spoken or touched on some really interesting points today, and I just want to thank you both for taking the time out of your day to join me on today's podcast. As I said, I think it was a really, really interesting one delving into sort of what we're excited about in 2023. And I mean, we'll we'll join back here same time next year and sort of discuss if those really came to fruition or not. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Francis. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Fintech Power 50 podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time here. Don't forget to check us out at thefintechpower50.com. And if you are interested in becoming a part of the Power 50, get in touch today to see how you and your brand will benefit.